Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and a very warm welcome to Brooklands. Thank you for being here and thank you once again for supporting the Trust. Um, our guest this afternoon needs no introduction. Um, he's a great friend of the Museum and the Trust and he was here in um, September last year. Um, so I'm delighted to welcome him this afternoon. I did almost had a heart attack this morning because my phone rang and an answered John said it's me and I thought I'm home. <laughs> but he's here so will you please give a very warm welcome to John Farley. Thank you very much ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for turning out on a bank holiday weekend. Now, very important, the people right at the back, would you put your hand up if you can hear me okay? So, so that's all right, is it? Good. Jolly good. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you. Um, yes, the Harrier story. I was asked to come back and talk to you about the Harrier because I talked about other things last September. Now, the Harrier story goes back to 1951 and a meeting at the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough. Now, 1951's a long time ago. I mean, that's 64 years, isn't it? And to try and get ourselves in the sort of mindset of thinking how long ago that was, it was two years later that our Queen came to the throne. It was two years before Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tensing wandered up Everest. And it was two years before the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, became President of the United States. That's a long time ago. It's also one year after I started my engineering apprenticeship at the Royal Aircraft Establishment. Now, in those days, the main gate looked like that. And in the evening, this is the sort of thing you saw. People went to work on their feet in buses or on bikes. There were very, very few cars. And indeed, the, the number of bike sheds at Farnborough was astonishing. But enough of that reminiscing. Um, let's have a look at the actual Harrier story in 1951. Now, as I said, it was at the Royal Aircraft Establishment that there was a meeting. Now, the meeting was of the REE Management Board. And one of the items on the agenda was what to do about these newfangled jet engines. It was apparent to the very senior boffins on the board that better and better jet engines were being made, and it was only a matter of time before somebody produced one with a thrust level that was big enough to exceed the weight of a modest aeroplane so it could take off vertically and so on. But of course there was the big issue. How on earth would you control the attitude of this thing? After all, as most of us in this room realise, aeroplanes are controlled by movable surfaces on the wings and tail that the pilot adjusts. But they only steer the aeroplane when it's going through the air. You can wave the controls about as much as you like on any of those out there, or the real ones in the hangar, and the thing's not going to move. 
any more than our motor cars, if we wind the wheel in the garage, you know, changes the direction it's pointing. Any more than the rudder on a boat that's moored in the harbour will change the direction that's pointing. So how were they going to control the attitude of this thing? Well, a chap called Dennis Higdon, who was a lot younger then, and uh, in fact he was another former RE apprentice, he came up with an idea and he said, what we need to do is to put small jets on the extremities of the aeroplane, nose, tail, wingtip and so on. And everybody said, OK, well, we better try that out. So young Dennis had a crack and he stuck a pole up in the middle of the floor in the hangar. And around that pole, he arranged to have... I'd better find my laser pointer, unless there's one laying around here. Uh, Right, excuse me a sec, I should have done that before, but I've been involved in, in conversations. <coughs> right, um, here's the pole in the hangar floor. This assembly here can swing round the pole. And this rectangle there is the model. Now whether you think of that as an aircraft wing, in which case rotating about that axis it's like the aircraft banking, or whether you think of it as the fuselage with that the nose and that the tail where you could raise or lower the nose or tail, it doesn't matter. There was a jet on each end and there was a radio control system so that RE test pilots of the day could have a crack at trying to hold this thing still. Because after all, if it was still, it meant it was dead level. It meant it was very accurately controlled. If it tilted slightly, then those jets would make it spin round the pole. Well, in no time at all, people thought this was wonderful. And, uh, and so young Dennis, um, he wrote a report in 1952. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not making history up on the hoof here. Um, I knew Dennis very well. I have a copy of his report. And as you can see there, it's dated April 1952. As I got to know Dennis, he was very keen to give me access to all the information that he had in his notebooks about the tests that he did at that time. And some of them made fascinating reading. I'm not going to bore you with the detail. Um, you know, the agendas for some of the meetings he had and so on. Well, because this thing was such a success, the Board of Management said, right, reaction controls, little jets, reaction controls clearly work, and the pilots can use them. What we now need is a man-carrying rig. Enter the flying bedstead as it was termed, or I think to give it Rolls-Royce's uh, better technical name, the thrust measuring rig. Now this is a couple of jet engines and uh, they, the exhaust from these two engines was arranged to come out vertically underneath the, the, the rig in which the engines were mounted. Now you can very easily see a jet there and very easily see a jet there. There is another one here, but you'll see that in a moment, uh, better in a video. The ones at the front and back, because 
That's where the pilots sat up on the top. They were, of course, the pitch control. OK, so big, big date. 3rd of August 1954. This was the date when Rolls-Royce's chief test pilot of the day, Captain Shepard, flew the first free hover, free hover, because it was tethered to start with. And jet-powered vertical flight became a reality. 1954. Three years after that first thought by the management board. And there is the good Lieutenant Commander um, at a, a modest altitude. Now, as this thing, I'm sorry, it's a very poor video, but I've got a very good reason for using it. Um, as this thing wanders around, you'll be able to see the pipe sticking out both out the side and out the front and the back and so on. Um, now, 1954 time, videos hadn't been invented, so photographers used film, and they always ran out at just the wrong moment. <laughs> This is a slightly better quality uh, film. Um, now, because that, that device, that man-carrying rig, the flying bedstead, had been specified by the Royal Aircraft Establishment, it was actually intended that it went to them for their research. And after the first few company proving flights, that is indeed what happened. And the bedstead went to REE Bedford, where aerodynamics flight had repositioned and, and had a fairly successful career there, looking at a variety of things as one does in a flight test programme. Right, now then, at the end of this, because the bed step was just as successful as, uh, as young Dennis's rig, at the end of this period, the boffins at Farnborough knew how to hover with a jet. They also, of course, knew beforehand how to fly on your wings. The question was, how did it get between the two? And you might think, which would be perfectly reasonable, well, all you need is something to push you along, to get you from the hover through what is called an accelerating transition uh, onto your wings. But actually, it's not quite that simple, and I'll come back to the reason why in a minute. So, realising that they needed to experiment on this transition, the same people who had decided to do the bedstead said, we want an aeroplane that can hover and also can accelerate. And that turned out to be the short SC-1, which was again specified in detail by the RAE scientists, but designed in detail, you know, the stressing, the XYZ, and, and screwing it together by Short. Short's got the contract. Now, as you see it there in that picture, um, there's an obvious air intake over the middle of the fuselage, and under that air intake are four small vertically mounted jet engines. And there's one out the back. Um, you can possibly see it See the one out the back better there. And you may just be able to see a slight interruption with the bottom line of the fuselage, which is where the jet pipes of the lift engines um, come out. 
Now then, I talked about it's not as easy as you think just to push the thing forward. Why not? As it sits in the hover, and it is anything, powered by jets, as it sits in the hover, there is this huge amount of air coming down underneath, the thrust that's holding it up. And of course it's coming in from the top or from the front or somewhere. But it isn't as simple as just that, because this huge amount of air that finishes up squirting out underneath the aeroplane induces all sorts of changes in the air around the aeroplane, so the whole air mass tends to drift downwards, which really affects the aerodynamics of the aeroplane as it starts to move forward. Big trim changes and so on. And this is what the, the SC-1 was designed to have a look at. Then in April 1960, Don Brooksmith, Short's chief test pilot, he did the first accelerating transition from a vertical takeoff got on his wings, flew past to show the point and came back and landed vertically. Okay, now later in that same year, 1960, that SC1 bit was, was back in August that year, um, sorry, April. Um, later that year, in October, then Hawkers did the first free hovers of an aeroplane called the P1127. Its registration happens to be XPA31, and that particular aeroplane is currently hanging from the ceiling in the Science Museum at South Kensington. Now, that aeroplane, XP831, the first Hawker P1127, that happened because of one man's idea. He was a French engineer, but we won't hold that against him, at least, not, not too much. Um, his idea was for something called vectored thrust. In other words, you could swivel jets. Now, being a Frenchman, he went along and saw Marcel Dassault, who was Mr. French Aerospace. And he couldn't interest Marcel Dassault. Now, that was a big mistake on Marcel Dassault's part. In fact, if Marcel Dassault had listened to Vibo, you would probably have had one of Vibo's relatives standing here now. But, so what was young Vibo to do when his country wouldn't listen? Well, he, he knew a couple of American officers who were working in Paris at what was called the Mutual Weapons Development Unit or some such name, a NATO organization. And he said to them, they were both pilots, he said, uh, what do you think of this then? And showed them his ideas. And they said, hmm, uh, we're not competent to be sure about that, but we know somebody who is. 
because those two American gentlemen were working with Stanley Hooker, who ran Bristol Sidley Engines at Bristol. And that was how the United Kingdom became involved. Those two Americans took Vibo's idea on his behalf to Hooker. And this was the idea. Vibo called it the gyropter. And what you see at the top on the right there is just a jet engine, that, or a turbojet, that's had the propeller taken off and the shaft is being used to run four centrifugal blowers through gearboxes and like huge hair dryers and, and you could swivel those things about and that was the idea. Well, Stanley Hooker certainly had a view on that lot. He did not like the mechanical complexity but he thought that the vector thrust idea was wonderful. And so he, he got on to one of his brightest young men, a chap called Gordon Lewis, and said, you work with Vibo on that idea. You come up with an engine uh, which doesn't have all that mechanical complexity. And Lewis, he had the idea that you could take the air from a fan on the front of an engine and duck that out and vary its angle directly without all this machinery. So the Lewis Vibo engine came to, came to pass and they actually worked together for over six months. They took out a patent and their first rig that they ran looked like that. Now this was never intended to fly. This was a concept proving piece of kit and it was made up of various bits and pieces that were laying around the engine, the engine company. The fan at the front, those three stages that you can see, they actually came from an Olympus compressor at the time. The thing at the back, the Orpheus gas generator, drove the fan mechanically. The output from the fan came out of those two nozzles either side. I know they look top and bottom here, but you're looking down on top of the thing. The interesting thing here is that the, the air that went into the fan and came out straight away out of the front nozzles and came into the fan and out the front nozzles, that had its own intake, whereas the air that went through the, the gas generator had a separate intake. Right, okay, um, that was the first engine. Now enter Hawker Aircraft. And again, to show that I'm not uh, inventing history, this is a letter written in 1961, no, 1987, I'm sorry, let's have a look. It's a bit small on my screen. Yeah, 1957, 57, beg your pardon. And it's a letter from Sidney Cam, who was Hawker's main fighter designer, to Dr. Hooker, Stanley Hooker, the Rolls-Royce man. Now, I don't expect you to read that, and there's no need to. Um, but what, what I want you to realise is that this is the actual letter, and the important paragraph in it is this one. Remember, this is, this is Cam saying. What my own view is that before we can go very far, we would have to bear in mind the practical application of the aircraft. In other words, it would not just be a research aircraft. Cam did not like the SC-1. He didn't see that there was any 
military potential in something similar to that. He wanted to design a fighter. So when he wrote to Hooker, Hooker sent him Vivo's thing, of course, and um, Sidney Cam's management technique was a bit different to, to, to Hooker's. To, yes, to Hooker's. Hooker, you will remember, went to his brightest young lad and said, sort that. Cam just took Vivo's brochure and threw it on the coffee table in the advanced project office. And thanks to, well, our thanks should be going now to a chap called Ralph Hooper who picked it up. Ralph Hooper was one of the young men in, in the future project office. And if you say to Ralph these days, what made you pick that brochure up and try and draw an aeroplane around it? He said, because it seemed more interesting than what I was supposed to do that afternoon. <laughs> Anyhow, Ralph tried to, um, tried to sort this out and he could, you could see his problem. There was a rear exhaust here and only the air from the fan uh, could be vectored. So he, he drew various aeroplanes to try and sort this out. Uh, he was going to hover the thing in a very nose-up attitude. Um, he got this big stalky undercarriage and so on. A few days later he tried one with side intakes. And then he had the brainwave. The brainwave for which we should all be grateful. He was driving to work one day and he thought, why don't we split the rear exhaust and put two more swivelling nozzles on it? So he rang up Gordon Lewis and Gordon said, cool, yeah. And, and Gordon then, over the period of one week, came up with this design of a proper four-nozzle vectored thrust engine. This was intended to fly, this concept, this design. I suppose it's just the way things happen in life, isn't it? You know, if Ralph hadn't had that thought, um, mind you, he he was involved with the team that did the Seahawk, and that, of course, had a bifurcated exhaust. Anyhow, once Gordon Lewis came up with a proper engine, uh, Ralph said, right, I'm going to draw the proper aeroplane round it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the three-view drawing of the aeroplane that, excuse me, that hangs in the Science Museum. That is the actual three-view drawing that he did, which became XP831. Well, if we just quickly go through, because I've been probably spent a bit long on all that, um, if we quickly go through, uh, you will see how the thing worked. I mean, we've got this big engine, two big intakes, four nozzles, they, they swivel. We've got to have a nozzle selection lever. Now, the big fat one outboard there is the throttle. Every jet engine has one. Push it forward, the jet engine goes faster. Pull it back, the jet engine goes slower. Inboard was a more narrow nozzle lever. You didn't have to use your muscles to turn the nozzles with that lever. There was a, an air motor, and it was called, well, sorry, there was a power control, and it was called an air motor. It's that green lump underneath. And with a system of pulleys and chains and so on, you signaled the green lump what you wanted the nozzles to do, and the green lump moved it via the, uh, via the machinery to to the angle you wanted. And then, finally, of course, the aeroplane needed Dennis Higgins 
reaction controls. It needed a pipe going to the nose tail and wingtips uh, with the appropriate outlets and so on, where the, the valves at the extremities were connected to the pilot's ordinary flying controls. So when you flew this aeroplane, you didn't know when it moved, whether it moved <coughs> excuse me, because of the aerodynamic controls or because of the reaction controls. And neither did you mind. I mean, you just wanted it to, to behave at any speed. Magic. And that's what it was like. Well, when Hugh Merriweather and Bill Bedford had a crack at doing the first tethered hover, things didn't go too well. Um, it, was, um, it was obviously very difficult to control. Now, there were two factors in here. One was the little jets weren't powerful enough. Okay, easy, we can wind the wick up on those. No, not easy. Um, every bit of air you put through those is robbed off the engine going out the back, so you lose thrust. So there was pressure on to make do with the smallest possible little jets. But the big thing was the undercarriage. And uh, you can see how it tilts there. Well, the undercarriage needed eight years' work, and then it was sorted. It had a bicycle undercarriage. That's, that's the term for an undercarriage where the main leg is on the centre line of the aeroplane, fairly well behind the centre of gravity, nose leg obviously where it is, and little kiddie wheels on the, on the extremities. Now, if you're an undercarriage designer, you realise at once that the main leg is the one that is stressed and designed to take the impacts of touchdown. This means it's got to be longer than all the others, so that it gets to ground first. Well, fine, you land vertically, that leg compresses, the nose leg gets on the ground, the outriggers get on the ground, but then once the, the downwards momentum has been killed by the springs in the undercarriage, then of course it comes back up a bit, and, and so it flops from one side or the other. Well, this gave awful ground handling and everybody hated it, uh, until somebody, and it won't surprise you to know it was Ralph Hooper, came up with a perfect solution, and it was called the self-shortening leg. In other words, the main leg worked like the leg on anybody else's undercarriage and, and absorbed the energy, but it had no rebound. So the airplane sat dead flat, and um, it, it, its ground handling was, was perfection. Now, in this story that I'm going through, we can't do it all simply chronologically because there were lots of activities that went on in parallel. So I need to actually talk about that, one of those. When XB831 was made, it was the first of six prototypes. Hawkers made one every few months. And as they learned from flying the early ones, each new one was slightly different. And they took the aerodynamic shape of the last one, the sixth one, and put it into service with a nine aircraft squadron 
it was in under the name Kestrel. Now, this squadron was a tripartite squadron. It wasn't a military squadron in the sense that it had guns and bombs and all the rest of it and rockets. It was it was a military squadron to to look at this jump jet stuff, this vertical and short takeoff and landing, this operating site flexibility, the the places you can fly this funny thing from, supermarket, car park, whatever, you know. Um, so the ministry, in order to look at this, and we have it, we have in, in the audience tonight, or this afternoon, I'm sorry, Sir Donald Spears, who was the chief scientist associated with this Kestrel Evaluation Squadron. And their brief was to see whether ordinary service pilots, well, experienced service pilots, not, not first tourists, could take advantage of this vector thrusting. And the unit was, was made up of officers from the Royal Air Force, the commanding officer, David Scrimger, was a Royal Air Force officer. There was a German and, and, and uh, uh, other English people and an American. So it was tripartite. It was an extremely successful exercise in that it did demonstrate the potential for military operations with a jump jet using Hawker's principle of vector thrust. Okay, that was going on in parallel with some of the stuff we've been talking about before. Now let's go look ahead to 68. And although I didn't mention it, I'm sorry, Sir Donald, that Kestrel squadron was 1966. 1968, at the Farnborough Air Show, the United States Marine Corps came along in the form of Colonel Tom Miller and Lieutenant Colonel Bob Baker. These were forward-thinking marine pilots who were in staff jobs in, in the Pentagon. They had heard about the Tripartite Squadron. They'd heard about what Hawkers were doing with the Harrier, what, what became the Harrier. And uh, so they came along, knocked on the PR officer's door and said, hey, we want to fly your aeroplane. And now this aeroplane had not yet been cleared for Royal Air Force service. It hadn't got a controller aircraft release. It was still in the middle of the development program. We hadn't got any two-seaters. We hadn't got any simulators. So for them to come along and just say, oh, I want to fly your aeroplane, they would have to fly one of our development instrumented aeroplanes, very very treasured devices. And how were we going to convert them safely? Anyhow, I think, I think it was Thursday they came. And by Friday I was asked to go along to Farnborough and talk to these guys. And by Monday or Tuesday the following week, after a lot of activity in the ministry over the weekend, Hawkers had approval to convert Tom Miller and Bud Baker to one of our aeroplanes. The two-flight thing, where they said, you tell us what to do on the first flight, and we'll tell you what to do on the second flight, uh, or what we're going to do on the second flight, that went out the window, of course. Um, I realised that these chaps had to be properly converted to the aeroplane if they were to be able to evaluate it sensibly in its many operational roles, not just in the circuit. 
So I got the job of, of converting these guys, and it was fine. Um, I, I had a little bit of trouble with Bob Baker because both these chaps are very experienced. I mean, Tom Miller, um, he held the world airspeed record at that time when it was done low level, excuse me, low level uh, around pylons in the desert. He was the number two pilot on the, air, on the air record team and he got the job of doing the record because the number one pilot killed himself doing it. Bob Baker was another very experienced Marine and they were both big men in the Phantom. And of course the Phantom, the F-4, big aeroplane, heavy, reheat, proper man's aeroplane. Not like this silly little kiddies thing, you know, with the outriggers and all the rest of it. But when I decided that they ought to only do one thing, one new thing on each sortie until they'd worked their way through all the various manoeuvres. And when I announced that their first sortie in the aeroplane, they would not be getting airborne, they'd only be taxiing. Poor old Bud, you know, flipped. He didn't want some Brit to tell him how to taxi a jet aeroplane, you know, etc, etc, etc. Well, I had good reasons for wanting to keep the taxi sortie. So I went and saw my boss, Hugh Merriweather, and I said, house rules, um, he does as he's told. He said, yeah. I said, you'll back me? He said, yeah. So I went and saw his boss, Tom Miller, and I said, look, I'm sorry, you know, he's got to do a taxi session. Tom didn't mind uh, doing one himself. Um, and so he had a word with him, and I briefed him. And you know when you're briefing somebody and he's just not taking any notice of what you say. Well, I rang the hanger up and I set him, I set him, Bud Baker, up to fail. I got them to suck most of the fuel out of the aeroplane so it only had about 300 pounds of fuel in it. This meant that it had a thrust to weight ratio of 1.3. And the taxi sorty brief went like this. You get in the aeroplane, you start it up, etc, etc. I'll stand on the ladder, I'll watch you do your cockpit checks. When everything's ready for you to press the button, um, I'll get down the ladder because of the intake, we'll get on the radio, you start it up. Toe brakes like a phantom, and nozzle steering like a phantom, and, uh, and off you go. Have a little drive around the airfield a bit and do 360s, and make yourself totally happy with the nozzle steering, and so on. And then when you've done all that, I want you to line up on the runway as if you're in your phantom. And I want you to set off doing a conventional takeoff. The only thing is, when you get to 60 knots, 6-0, I want you to close the throttle, put the brakes on, stop, turn around, come, come back and have a cup of coffee and we'll talk about it. Well, 1.3G is what Bud Baker got launched at. And to put it into numbers that might mean something to most of us, um, from a standstill to the legal limit on the motorway here, 2.4 seconds. I mean, that's the sort of acceleration that you get from a very large bike. Well, Bud wasn't expecting that. And so it completely threw him. And he got out to 120 knots before he got the throttle off. There was still plenty of runway left because of the very rapid acceleration. But now he was, he was thinking, 
I've screwed up, I've got to stop. And the psychologists tell us that if you are taken by surprise by an aeroplane, a new aeroplane, you haven't flown much, you tend to revert to the behaviour patterns appropriate to your previous type. Well, this previous type is the Phantom. Okay, fine, got toe brakes. But in the Phantom, you all support the stick back. Uh, because that pressed, that tilted the tail up and pressed the aeroplane down harder on the ground and then um, the brakes work better, don't they? Right, so he pulled the stick back. But being right-handed, he pulled it back and over to the right because it doesn't matter when you're on the ground, does it, that you've got it in a phantom? Well, this little 1127 is now doing 120 knots and when he pulled the stick back and over to the right, the nose wheel came up the left wheel wingtip came up and he scraped the right-hand tailplane only superficially along the runway uh, before it fell down because this little aeroplane was nearly ready to fly on its wings. Well, of course, when he came back, he had eyes like organ stops. <laughs> I think, go, you know. And, I mean, I had him. As an instructor then, I had him, you know. And he listened to everything, every single thing I said during the rest of their couple of weeks. And both of them did a quite brilliant evaluation of the aeroplane and they went back. I mean, they, these were good guys, but they were in, in a Pentagon job. They weren't formal test pilots. And of course, it's not on really for people like that to start making decisions about whether the Marine Corps should have this Harrier or not. But they made enough fuss around the Pentagon and got enough support from the top of the Marine Corps that the Navy system swung into action. Now you might say, why the Navy system? Well, the United States Navy was and still is responsible for the procurement of United States Marine Corps aeroplanes. Doesn't matter why it's like that, it just is like that. And so in a few months, beginning of the next year, we had an MPE come over, a Navy Preliminary Evaluation Team. I think it was February in 69. This is a team of real test pilots, current test pilots, from their equivalent of Boscombe Down, Patuxent River in the United States. And uh, these guys were good guys. Bob Thomas was a commander in the United States Navy and he was the leader of the team. And there was Bill Casey and Mike Ripley and Bill Sharon. They were all extremely competent gentlemen. Now, I realised when it came to trying to check them out in the same way that I checked out Bud and, and Tom, of course, that um, after their checkout, they were going to go and do what any test pilot would do. In other words, go through the planned programme that he had arrived in England with. If you're going to go and fly a new aeroplane, you have fixed ideas about what it is you want to look at, what it is you want to do, how you're going to do it, and all the rest of it. The information you want. And I was afraid that if, in doing that, they tripped over a problem that the aeroplane had, and remember, it wasn't yet in service with the Royal Air Force, because there were things that still needed sorting. If they tripped over a problem, they'd do what I would do. They'd tear their their pre-planned thing up, and they would concentrate on the problem. And I was afraid, therefore, since the aeroplane had more good things than bad things, 
that they wouldn't get the full list of good things sorted because they were concentrating on the bad things. Well, the way I saw that was I put them in a classroom for two days and I briefed them on every single problem we had with the aeroplane in detail, what we intended to do about it and how one dealt with it in the sky. And I saw these guys looking at each other and I didn't know until much later on that they weren't used to this sort of treatment. And when I said to Bill Sharon, you know, five years later, you know, he said, haven't you heard what we call the American contractors? And I said, no. He said, we call them lying, cheating contractors because they never tell us anything that's wrong with the aeroplane and they just hope we won't find out. And for two days you told us nothing but what was wrong. So the end result was when these guys flew the aeroplane, they didn't experience anything that was unexpected. And they wrote a brilliant report and as we know, the, the Marine Corps bought the aeroplane. Okay, so now we look at 1969, another of these parallel sort of activities, when the aeroplane went into service with the Royal Air Force. Self-shortening leg, all that sort of thing. <coughs> Excuse me, to some of the people in the world, uh, they think the Harrier was just a sort of funny little toy built to improve the quality of airshares. Well, it wasn't like that at all. It was an operational aeroplane. And the operational equipment in the Harrier GR1, Ground Attack Reconnaissance Mark I, the operational equipment in that aeroplane was in advance of all other aircraft in the Royal Air Force at that time. It was the first Royal Air Force aeroplane to have a head-up display. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with one, it's a sheet of glass mounted in this, just inside the cockpit behind the windscreen. And on that, from a, from a projector underneath, is, is printed, not printed, is displayed. All the information that you need to fly the airplane, the height, the speed, the heading, you know, all that sort of stuff. The stuff that you normally have to look down in the cockpit and find from your instruments. So how much nicer it is to have a head-up display so that you can look outside when you're flying at low level and don't have to take your eyes off the ground that's flashing past. Well, as I said, that was the first aeroplane in the Royal Air Force experience to have a head-up display. The next piece of kit that it had, which was a first for the Royal Air Force, was an inertial navigation system. Now, all this is is a black box that can tell you where you are at all times without transmitting anything. It's self-contained and its works allow it to know wherever the aeroplane goes. It doesn't know where it started from, you have to tell it that, but if you don't know which airfield you're starting from at the beginning of the trip, you probably have got other problems as well. So you punch in the latitude and longitude of your, your start-up pan at the airfield and from there on an inertial navigation system through a mixture of clever gyros and accelerometers and computers will measure the acceleration in any direction, turn it into a velocity, turn it into a distance and uh, it knows where you are. The final thing is a moving map display. Now, since you've got an inertial navigation system, one of the things you could do with it is to put 
a screen down between your legs, a nice big thing, on which you project a map. And that map moves around. You are always in the centre of the, of the screen, and the map moves around behind you, so it shows you exactly where you are. And that doesn't half beat sitting in a hunter, you know, with a handheld map and looking out the side and trying to decide where you are. So what an amazing leap forward the operational equipment was for the Harrier. The Wall, I think, still just saw it as some sort of toy, but never mind. 1971, we're going back now to the Marine Corps. They got the aeroplanes. They wanted to fly it from their LPH class, landing platform helicopter. This is not an aircraft carrier. This is just a flat deck ship with the Marines, the grunts, the, uh, in, in the bottom of the boat and a few helicopters on the top. And you drive this boat to within 50 miles of the beach where you want to carry out an amphibious assault. And they get the, the grunts up, put them in the choppers, they take off and they go yugga dugga dug, and they do the amphibious assault. However, they're obviously very vulnerable to enemy air attack. And the Marines have always wanted to be able to have their own aeroplanes, fixed-wing aeroplanes that they could use to defend the ship and the helicopters while the amphibious assault was taking place. And they saw the Harrier as the obvious thing. And there you see the Harrier alongside in the hover, two or three more, four more on the deck and so on. Now then, something I haven't mentioned. If you make your aeroplane too heavy by filling it with fuel, putting lots of tanks on, bombs, guns, rockets, if you make the weight of the aeroplane greater than the thrust of the jet engine, you can't do a vertical takeoff. You can put the nozzles down, you can open the throttle, and it'll roar and shake, but it won't go anywhere. Well, talking numbers, the engine of the day had 19,000 pounds of thrust. The empty aeroplane was 13,800 to 14,200 in those days. So it had a, it had a perfectly good vertical payload. But if you filled it right up, it weighed about 22,000 pounds and, and put all the guns and bombs on it. So we're short of 3,000 pounds. Now, if you run along a runway so that the wing is going fast enough, not to pick the whole aeroplane up, but just to provide 3,000 pounds of lift, and you bang the nozzles down then, you will jump into the air in a mixture of jet lift and wing lift. And it's called a short takeoff. Well, that is what they were doing from their ships because no military commander wants you to go with anything less than the maximum of what you can take. So, let's imagine you are sitting in that Harrier inside the circle. You're at max weight and you've got to do a short takeoff. You've got to run along the deck with your nozzles facing aft. And when you get to the end, and it's very obvious when you get to the end, you just bang the nozzles down and you fly away. On but in it, first of all, of course, you'll have to ask that chap to move his helicopter. <laughs> all right? Then you can do your short takeoff. And this, this became a completely routine operation. But if you think about it, it's only going to work easily when the weather's like in that picture. If the sea is very rough, we know what steamers do, you know, they go up like this and they go poof, down like that. 
And with your luck and my luck, by about Thursday afternoon, we get to the end of the deck on a short takeoff, just as it's pointing down at the sea. And that's no way to start the trip. So a Lieutenant Commander, Doug Taylor, in the Royal, in the Royal Navy, Lieutenant Commander in the Royal Navy, he came up with the idea of a ski jump. And it's simple enough. If you put a ramp, a curved ramp, on the end of your flight deck, providing the exit angle of the ramp is bigger than any bow-down tendency of the boat, then your aeroplane will always be going up and away from the sea. And it was as simple as that and as magical as that. But in order to prove his idea, and there were a lot of sceptics, um, an adjustable angle ramp was built at Bedford. And we're talking 1977, now August 77, we started doing the first ski, long jump, ski jump launches. Moving on to 1978, we have by now got the Sea Harrier. This was a, a version of the then Royal Air Force aeroplane modified for what we expected the Navy to want to do. The whole cockpit was lifted up nearly a foot in order to improve the all-round visibility because this was to be the Harrier FRS Mark I, Sea Harrier FRS Mark Fighter, Reconnaissance and Strike, so fighter. Air-to-air, -air. was going to have air-to-air -air weapons. There's nothing worse than air-to-air -air in an aeroplane when you can't see behind you, so hence raise the pilot up. Reconnaissance, well, radar for the first time, so that they could go and find the enemy ships or go and find the enemy aeroplanes. And strike was a nuclear capability because the Navy wanted to be able to drop nuclear depth charges. And just as a little aside, you will never see a Sea Harrier without its inboard pylons on. Because the inboard pylons are where those depth charges would have been uh, carried. And because of the need for ultra-reliability in all nuclear weapons, they wouldn't allow us to have the normal sort of electrical connections at the pylon wing junction that are necessary when you take a pylon off any aeroplane. So we had to have continuous wiring uh, right down to the store and uh, that's why you always see the inboard pylons on, on sea harriers. Farnborough 1978 showed in public the sea harrier for the first time. The public hadn't seen it before and uh, it only flew uh, August, I don't know, I forget the date, August the 20th or something, it was a Sunday, and uh, we got our first flight in the Sea Harrier. The Farnborough Show was in September. Most of the time in between was painting the aeroplane and so on, because when I flew it, it had only its primer coat on it. So Farnborough 78 saw the Sea Harrier and the ski jump introduced at Farnborough. Now, back to another parallel activity. Also in the 1970s came the laser. The RAF airplanes, the GR Mark I's, um, they didn't have any advanced weapon aiming capability. If you were to drop bombs accurately, um, well, if you drop bombs accurately, you were probably a bit lucky. It was just like a hunter. But the laser became invented and it was clear that 
an LRMTS, a laser rangefinder and marked target seat seeker, um, could be fitted. And to cut a long story short, this enables a pilot carrying out his first pass at a ground target that is illuminated by a laser to get a very accurate bomb drop. It transformed the weapon aiming capability and so on of the aeroplane. We've all seen amazing sort of laser pictures and so on, some of the wars that have happened in, uh, in more recent times. And really these, these laser guided systems are remarkably accurate. Okay, 1981. The Sea Harrier went into service with the United, sorry, United States, with the Royal Navy. And there's a lineup of some of them at Yeoverton. 1982, of course, was the Falklands. And uh, there was a big scramble to get as many Harriers as we could muster. And uh, initially it was only 20 uh, onto the boats and for Invincible and um, I wanted to say bull, but it, Hermes, thank you. For, for Invincible and Hermes to wander off. The, the, the fleet was reinforced with more Harriers a week or two later, taken down on as deck cargo on the Atlantic conveyor. And uh, there you see one aeroplane either positioning or about to do a landing on the mat at the front of the Atlantic conveyor. All the way down, the ship went by itself, all the way down, they had a Harrier, Sea Harrier, with air-to-air -air missiles and guns loaded on standby, on the pad, to do a vertical takeoff and defend the ship. When, when the Falklands was all over, of course, Margaret Thatcher came along to Kingston to, to thank all the guys there for, for what they did. Now then, another parallel, parallel activity. The Marine Corps got the aeroplane in 71, as is normal with any efficient fighting force. Within a year or two of getting a brand new piece of kit, you take a couple or three of your good brains and you shut them in a dark room and say, tell us what we need to buy next time. In other words, you need to get ahead of the game. Well, these guys came out in 1974 or 5 time and said we need a Harrier 2, that's Roman 2. Well, what's the difference? Well it's got a bigger wing so that it can carry more fuel and carry more weapons. We want the Harrier 2 to do everything that a Harrier 1 would do but in the case of range go twice as far or in the case of payload carry twice as much. And that was even from a vertical takeoff. Okay, fine, no problem, we'll just make you a bigger engine. No, 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 no. No money for a bigger engine. So, we've now got to sort out how do you improve a VTO without more, without changing the engine, and uh, a bigger and better engine. And of course, some of the other aspects of the, of the improved performance were, were easier to meet. Bigger wing. So, what they did was they took the blue bits on the left-hand side, they were changes from the original Marine Corps aeroplane. 
So they manufactured some new intakes for the engine so that it could breathe better. They manufactured the bigger wing so it could carry more fuel and have more weapon stations. And uh, that was flown as the Y AV-8B, to prove the changes, if you like. On the right-hand side of the screen was how they expected the definitive Harrier II to look, um, with the extra red bits added to the blue bits. And the red bits weren't, weren't what one would call high risk, so there was no real problem. They didn't need to be tested independently. So there's a comparison of the two wings. The yellow wing is the big one, the blue one is the smaller one. And as it says there, um, the little one is 201 square feet and the Harrier II is 230. The Harrier II had much bigger flaps. Look at the cross section of the two wings. The thin blue one is what's on the Sea Harrier. The big yellow one is what was on the AV-8B and later Royal Air Force 5s, 7s and 9s. Clearly there's going to be more drag with that yellow one and the Harrier II, Roman II, characterised by the big wing, does have, I don't know, a reduction of airspeed of about 18 knots compared to a Sea Harrier, but it was a much better bomb truck. They also wanted the outriggers to be moved in. You can see how the yellow outrigger is much closer to the centre line than the blue one. This was because the Marines wanted to fly from narrower roads. No other reason. That's fine. You know. Okay, um, I had a lot of fun about this time going out to the States, 1979 now, um, to fly the YAV-8B, the new wings and that sort of thing. And then eventually to fly the actual AV-8B. Um, and I spent most of 1982 out at Edwards Air Force Base doing engine development trials because they did make changes to the engine a little. And, um, and we had, McDonnell Douglas had a rather, uh, what, what's the word, optimistically uh, said, well, we can do all this in six weeks. It actually took within a week or two a year. And uh, we had three or four build standards on the engine and two or three on the intake before we got the performance that was necessary to meet the Harrier II requirements. Great fun. I had over two hours gliding in the aeroplane that year at Edwards, and since it has some of the characteristics of this building, if dropped at 40,000 feet, you, um, it, that was a lot of episodes. Uh, I think 40-odd um, episodes. But the engine, because we were having to deliberately stop the engine to show that we could restart it, we were having to deliberately expose the intake to conditions where it might fail to produce the sort of airflow the engine would swallow. So it was all, all perfectly sensible stuff. And because we were doing it out at Edwards, there was no risk at all. At least I didn't think there was any risk. You couldn't do it at Dunsfold because if you didn't get the engine going again, you needed a lot more space than Dunsfold to, um, to do a forced landing. There were a few politics which will probably interest Sir Donald Spears and a few more people as well. I was a Brit civilian flying at a, the United States Air Force Flight Test Centre on a United States Navy aeroplane programme on a Marine Corps aircraft still owned by McDonnell Douglas. 
and and he's going to what? Stop the engine. Do, um, there were a few hierarchies who were anxious that should what they thought was going to happen by about Wednesday go wrong, they wouldn't be lumbered. So you can imagine there were a lot of politics associated with that exercise. But it was all fine. And uh, I, speaking personally, and I'll stop this reminiscence in a second, I had a wonderful time out in the States flying. I was chief test pilot at the time at Dunsfold. And when you're chief of anything, the head of any department, of course, you can't just do the work of the department. You've got, to, you've got to fend off all the other departments, you've got to deal with PR, marketing, uh, health and safety, whatever it is. And uh, much of your time is spent not doing what you want to do, which is fly the aeroplanes, um, but uh, getting on with all this nausea. Out in the States, I was just a pilot on the programme the pilot that they happened to want, but just the pilot. And poor old Andy Jones was back at Dunsfold uh, trying to keep that place afloat. Um, but I mustn't reminisce uh, anymore. Right, off we go. The Sea Harrier was retired in 2006. This was a political decision. Our boats hadn't come under, our ships hadn't come under enemy air attacks since 1982, so that was 18, 24 years or something. And so the government of the day decided they couldn't afford to have fighters on their ships, and so they threw the FA-2 away. Pity, because it was the first European aircraft capable of using the beyond visual range United States advanced medium-range air-to-air missile. A missile you can fire at a target you never see, a missile you can fire in the night, a missile you can fire at a target in cloud, it, it, a missile you can fire at very long range, 30-odd miles. Unlike the ones they took down to the Falklands, which were really sort of one-and-a-half-mile range devices, you had to see the enemy, you had to lock the seeker head of your missile up before you let it go. Very restricted. The Amram was an amazing piece of kit, and it forms the basis of what is used today. But the, the FA-2 was arguably the best interceptor of the day when it was retired. But then so many decisions like that are made on the basis of politics rather than military argument. How are we getting on? Right, almost finished. Um, the RFGR-5 went into service in 85 and 1985, and this, this was the equivalent of the United States Marine Corps AV-8B, the thing I've been flying down at Edwards. Um, it had extra pylons compared to four under each wing, compared to the two of the Harrier one, and uh, in addition it had two pylons more than the Marine Corps one, because on the undercarriage pylons, uh, sorry, the outrigger pylons here and up there, we, we added the ability to hang Sidewinder. The story of the Harrier II in the Royal Air Force from 1985 to 2010, what's that, 15 years, 25 years, um, was one of continuous improvement of the military kit. The head-up displays, the national nav systems, the movie map displays of the day 
were you know, much more advanced. There were all sorts of offensive combat bits of kit, defensive kit and so on. But the aeroplanes were kept very, very much up to date. And then, as we all know, on the 15th of December 2010, the Royal F, sorry, the United Kingdom decided that it didn't want Harriers anymore. We won't go into that decision. Um, we just accept it. It's a, it was a political decision, not a military one. And shortly after it happened, all sorts of people rang me up from all sorts of the media uh, saying they understood I've been with the aeroplane since 1964 or something and I must be crying my eyes out and all the rest of it. And I said, no, 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 no. Um, no, I don't want to go on your programme because there's nothing wrong with the aeroplane. Um, it's just a political decision. The aeroplane's fine. Why should I be upset? The aeroplane is still being flown by a lot of other countries. And of course, as soon as the media realise you don't want to cry in front of the camera, then you don't have to get on the train. It's super. Um, the United States Marine Corps are still using the aeroplane. And now they have got the 70-some-odd that we had when they were grounded politically, they've been sold to the United States, so they've now got more spares and engines and so on. And that has enabled them to say that they will not finish flying Harriers until 2030. They're going to start winding them down in 2027, but it's still, you know, 12, 13 years, 14 years away. So the United States Marine Corps, very pleased with the aeroplane, very modern, and a lot of the aircraft that were grounded, were only three years old. You know, that, it's, uh, never mind. Um, the Italian Navy is still flying the aeroplane. Spanish Navy is still flying the aeroplane. The Thai Navy has still got the aeroplane. And their ship even has a ski jump. And uh, the Indian Navy are still flying sea harriers. So that's why I don't want to cry in, in my whatnot, um, because there's nothing wrong with the aeroplane, and the Ralph Hoopers of this world can be very, very proud of it. But, and this whole story that I've tried to cover, uh, but, it's, an, it's a very big but. It's only thanks to four British designers. Hooker his man Lewis, Cam, and his man Hooper. And of course, the scientists of the Royal Aircraft Establishment. And there's young Dennis Higdon, who, he died recently, a couple of years ago. Okay, there we go. Um, do you have any questions? Sorry if I've gone five minutes over the top. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, do you have any views on the F-35 as a replacement for Harry? Yes. Um, <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, we yeah. um, The F-35, of course, comes in three versions. The A, which is designed to replace the world's F-16s. The B, which is designed to replace the world's Harriers and the C, which is designed to replace the earlier versions of, of uh, Ornit with the United States Navy. And that's got a hook for them to use their traditional way of flying from ships. 
the version 5 from land to replace the AEs, that's no problem. Sorry, to replace the F-16 with the F-35A, that's no problem. But the B, how are you going to do this thing? Well, my bad feeling about the F-35B is that the Marines should not have asked for supersonics. Because they asked for supersonics, a whole lot of aspects of the aeroplane had to be changed, had to be compromised. I don't see that supersonics have got anything to do with the use of tactical aviation in, in the war and supporting the Marines fighting on the ground. But unfortunately, I think it's true that the senior people in the military, especially when they're being advised by their pilots, you know, real men don't fly subsonic aeroplanes, you know. Um, so it's a pity that it's supersonic. Stealthy, yes. Vertical landing, yes. Now, why is it a pity it's supersonic? Because in order to fly supersonically, you have to blow out the back faster than you want to go forward. That's fairly obvious. And the only way we know how to make air go faster and faster out of the back of a jet engine is to burn more and more fuel in it. So if you're going to fly supersonically, you have a high exhaust gas velocity and you have a hotter exhaust gas. Both of these things, I think, limit the VSTOL flexibility, the sort of sides you can fly from. The increase in temperature and velocity when the thing is doing a vertical landing is, is not that great. It doesn't, have re it doesn't use reheat and so on, but it's still there. So I think it's a shame. Um, that it's got the supersonic capability. The paradox is that I think the Brits need the aeroplane more than the Marine Corps because the Brits don't know what job they've got to do. The Marine Corps knows supporting their troops at close range. With our new aircraft carriers, I don't know, and I don't think the politicians know, and I don't think the Ministry of Defence knows exactly what enemy we might be up against. Are, is it going to be, shall we take the extreme case of Russia or China, uh, very high technology. I'm not suggesting it's likely to happen at all, but if, if we had to fight either to defend the United Kingdom or as allies of some other organisation or country, if we had to fight, we might well have to do air-to-air. -air. We might well need the supersonics that give you the advantage in air interception and so on. I don't know. So I, I think that the Brits need an aeroplane which could do all the jobs, and the F-35B can. It could do each of them a little better if it didn't have to do all of them, but we, as a small nation, in my view, need to really, really need that aeroplane, and I think it'll be very good. I'm sorry, that's far too long an answer. <laughs> yes? John, thanks very much for coming to talk to us today. You may have covered this in your previous talk, which I wasn't able to attend. How did you transition from being an engineering apprentice at Farnborough to becoming a Harriet test pilot? Quite simply, um, I told the principal of the Royal Aircraft Research Technical College that I wasn't going to go to Cranfield to do an advanced degree in, in aeronautics, which caused him to flip 
I then did the mandatory first tour on hunters. I then got picked as an instructor to go to Cranwell. It was a basic fire instructor. Halfway through that tour, I was sent to the Empire Test Pilot School, which is what I wanted to do all along. And uh, so I was lucky to get it that quickly in their courses. And then I was posted to the Atlantic Research Rise at Bedford. There I was flying the SC1 and B127. It's the best ever finished by that. And then when Bill Bedford dropped out of the top of the dance hall team, I was in at the bottom. Easy. <laughs> 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 what's the maximum height of the Harriet and Hopper? What's the maximum height of the Harriet and Hopper? Well, like everything else, uh, that depends. Um, the, the thrust of any jet engine, not just the Harriet's jet engine, the thrust of any jet engine produces without a and the thrust of any jet engine produces with temperature, decreasing temperature. In case of a Harrier, you lose three pounds of thrust for every millibar. Um, you lose a thousand pounds of thrust for every 10 degrees C if you warm up the air. So you tell me how high this place is and how hot it is, and I'll tell you whether I can hold it. But much more importantly, there is the issue of Say I, I got David into the hover at 10,000 feet, you can in some circumstances. How do I know I'm in the hover? I've got this one other that said, hover. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> I mean, you look out there. So, yeah, I'd hover at the side of an Alp at 10,000 feet because I could see I was in the hover. But I wouldn't just go and do it somewhere uh, because I wouldn't know. Does that explain to you? There's no point to it anyway. So. <laughs> one, one more question, perhaps, John. There is another one. No? Oh, what? Yeah, uh, yeah, yes. yeah, sure. Thank you for coming, sir. Very, very interesting talk. Uh, just a slight technical thing. I noticed in a number of your pictures that the flaps were down either at takeoff or landing. Is it a standard procedure to use some amount of flap for either both or none? Um, certainly. In the Harrier 1, um, they're quite small flaps. Um, and we put them down because this downflow of air that I talked about when we're doing the vertical takeoff, we're in hover, it's got less sort of plan view that the airframe could press on that one thing. And then, of course, there's the fact that as you accelerate the wave, you, you're going to maximize your wing lift by having flaps in the same way that all airframes can do their wing lift. In the case of the Harrier 2, the flaps were very much bigger because we had to get this great weight off in the same distance around the rest of it. And those flaps had to be computer controlled. In other words, they followed the nozzle. You couldn't put them down to more than 25 degrees without the nozzle or the reflection of the nozzle hitting the flap. If you put them right down, there's a big one, the it would blown off. So yeah, we use flaps to enhance the wing lift in the transition. Um, just like any other. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, John Farley. Thank you, John. I did write a funny book. If anybody wants to buy one, I've got a couple. Um, it's not an autobiography. Um, it's about aeroplanes, and if there's anybody here who flies professionally, 
then there's, um, there's my view of some of the stuff that I think pilots need to know uh, about lift drag, uh, design of certain aspects of the aeroplane and so on. Um, it is not a novel. You do not have to start at the beginning and go through to the end. It's, um, it's got individual chapters and they're like mini books on that topic. So I've got a few of those if anybody wanted one. It's, it's normally 30 quid and I said to the publisher, it's a bank holiday weekend. He said, okay, 20.